happening now. We'd like to welcome our, welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world and all the way over to Arizona, where we think Peggy George will be joining us. This is the EdTech Situation Room for January the 25th, 2017. I am Wes Fryer, the Director of Technology at the wonderful Cassidy School here in Northwest Oklahoma City, and I am joined across the internet, as always, in Missoula, Montana. Whoa. <laughs> Hold on, I just started to hear myself. Wow, I had opened up another tab and I started to hear myself. Uh, that is not a good experience. Sorry for <laughs> getting thrown a curveball there. So again, joined across the internet as always from Missoula, Montana by Jason Neifer. How are you, Jason? Good, Wes. How are you doing? I'm good now that I'm not hearing an echo of myself delayed about, you know, uh, two seconds. So that is definitely... Not a great thing for yeah, a podcast. I imagine, imagine a bit off-putting. So, well, we I've been thrilled with YouTube Live and the stability, and just we we haven't had many many blips. When we started this show a little over a year ago, uh, we were trying to do Blab and some other things, which was a good experience. But it really is nice to have a reliable platform, and we want to. Give a shout out to Marta in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, who had tweeted us during the week that she is trying to, to tune into our shows. And in addition to Peggy George uh, out in Phoenix, Arizona, to Ben Wilkoff. Ben actually has shared a wonderful link, which I did not finish before the show, but it is about a 15-minute YouTube review of two of the Chromebooks that we have been talking about a little bit, the Samsung Chromebook Plus and the Asus C213 uh, touch-based Chromebook, and I think these are both Chromebooks, and we're going to talk more about that in the show tonight, that will run the Google Play Store and may really usher in a new era for Chromebooks in education. So tonight we are going, as we usually do, to go down a list of recent EdTech articles, which you can find on edtechsr.com slash links. And if you are not watching us live, as we suspect most of our viewers probably are not, <clears throat> you're probably listening to the 32 kilobit audio version, which we have archived as well as the 360p, somewhat smaller, about a 200 meg download video version of our shows that run about an hour each week, and that is on EdTechSR. You can follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. And next week, as a little preview, we are going to be moving forward an hour, uh, and we're going to have Florida educator Jen Carey. And so as to not keep Jen up too late, we'll <clears throat> just adjust our clocks ahead a little bit. So Jason, where would you like to start us off tonight? Well, I think that there's a, been a lot of great announcements this week from Google-related Chromebooks, and so I'd like to start there, and I think there's maybe a bit of a deeper discussion um, that we could talk about there. Um, so first and foremost, um, uh, full disclosure, I'm a part-time Chromebook user. I believe, Wes, you're also a part-time Chromebook user, and I've been pretty fascinated with the topic since the CR48 was released um, during you know early Google experimentations. And that was, I think, back in 2009, 2010. I mean, it's been a while. Chromebooks have certainly matured over the last um, seven or so years. But um, Google announced on the Google blog yesterday that they are working on um, uh, with with third-party manufacturers, OEM manufacturers, a, a new generation of Chromebooks um, that are aimed at the educational market. And um, there are lots of things that are uh, interesting about these kind of educationally focused Chromebooks, but I want to mention a couple of these ideas to start with. And there were some announcements in the Chrome or on the Chrome blog that I thought were very interesting. So uh, they talked about uh, three things that make the Chromebook more versatile um, in an 
educational arena. One of them was the ability to use a stylus. And so um, being able to take the, the screen and probably flip it around all uh, a Lenovo a yoga style um, two in one, as they call them, tablet slash desk or slash laptop, fold it around, utilize a stylus to be able to uh, write on um, that particular uh, uh, device. The second, they're also talking about something called a world facing camera um, and the uh, two new Chromebooks they announced, which, by the way, are the Chromebook Spin 11 and the um, from Acer and the Asus Chromebook C213, both of which are arriving later this spring. Um, the second uh, uh, factor um, in these hardware platforms is something called a world-facing camera so that uh, you could take the Chromebook and uh, capture video um, from all directions. In other words, kind of like a tablet, hold it up and be able to take video with it. Um, so it's, it's, it's more versatile in that way as opposed to laptop where it's difficult sometimes to take video in a meaningful way. And the last one was that um, uh, USB or US, USB-C charging um, and the idea being it's a super fast charge. So even if you're not able um, to get a full day's charge out of it, setting you know, in your cart or in a charger during lunch could get you through the rest of the day. Um, but the other thing I thought was super interesting about this announcement is that um, they're touting two things that I think are super interesting. One of them is the uh, availability of Android apps. Um, it's been now over a year since Google announced um, um, that they would be putting Android apps on um, the Chromebook platform. Actually, it's been it's been um, just over a half a year where they announced that they would be putting uh, Android apps on the Chromebook platform after months of speculation that Android and the Chrome OS would somehow merge. The answer has been instead to bring the application uh, market that is popular on the Android platform and deliver it on the Chromebook experience. There's still just a handful of Chromebooks where you can utilize that. So that's something interesting that we should maybe dig through one more time here. But the other one is that um, Adobe is apparently very committed to bringing um, um, what I'm assuming are fairly functional and world-class applications um, to Chromebooks, including something called Photoshop Mix, uh, Lightroom Mobile, uh, Illustrator Draw, Photoshop Sketch, Adobe Comp CC, and Creative Cloud Mobile, um, which are in some cases Android apps, and I think there also might be web-based apps utilized in that architecture. So one of the biggest criticisms of Chromebooks, which is they're not super great creation machines, um, can become uh, a more evolved to be able to do that. So a lot of announcements around how Chromebooks um, uh, might be expanding in the classroom. So, uh, Wes, as a tech director, obviously you are, I'm sure, very interested in this this rollout. But is there something amongst these announcements that's interesting to you as a tech director? Oh, absolutely. And as those of you that have tuned in for a while know, <clears throat> I've been wrestling and talked to our technology team and gotten input from our teachers, presented to our admin team a few weeks ago about a proposal for rather than just getting MacBooks for everybody as we have done for the past five plus years, uh, looking at a Chromebook paired with an iPad. But of course, with this and the stylus and the Play Store, you know, it even begs, uh, do you need that iPad? Um, I am really, really interested in that Adobe piece. Uh, Jason we, and I did a show from uh, this past year in Denver, and <clears throat> one of the things that I think 
Google had made these announcements, you know, whatever, right before, day before we had talked um, about Soundtrap and some other, you know, web-based programs that were going to allow Chromebook users to really jump into content creation. And and that is the, one of the things I am most passionate about is is creating content and having kids show what they know with media, all of that stuff. So I am really excited about Adobe. Um, one of the, the upper division faculty members that I have been talking with, and it's actually because of a damaged uh, MacBook that we've had. We're looking at needing a replacement. It's not on a, on a refresh cycle, but huh, we've been talking about, um, you know, uh, creative apps, basically, and and her concern over, you know, being able to make a transition to a Chromebook. You know, could she do the kinds of things that she's used to doing with really the Adobe suite in a, in a photo you know, manipulation and, and editing and design environment. So I'm really interested in that. Um, I'm just really overall, um, I'm torn. The number one thing, and maybe, maybe Ben Wilkoff can, can uh, encourage us on this. And, and actually he, Ben may join us. He's <clears throat> put into the chat that Adobe draws incredible on the plus with the stylus. Um, he said, it's the only drawing app that works like butter. Um, it's return on investment. You know, if we were to invest in these Chromebooks, are these going to last like five years, which is basically what, what we need our, our laptops to last. And, you yeah. know, that's the tough thing with new technology is, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say. We've got our first generation Samsung two gig Chromebooks that are just hobbling along at school. And I am, you know, really ready to replace those. Uh, we've been pricing Dell 11 inch Chromebooks down to 167 bucks, which that's without the Google $25 admin license. If we're replacing machines, we don't have to get those. Jason, do we know how much these are going to cost and, and kind of what the price point is going to be? These are going to be four gig models or are these all the way up to eight? Um, I've not seen uh, much in related to to pricing on these particular items, and in fact, I'm going to double check this article here. It's it, it doesn't say here, um, but I think that that part of what I think has really changed about Chromebooks, Chromebooks started off as extremely cheap pieces of hardware, right? Like a low uh, or a low need operating system. The the Chrome OS operating system didn't take much to run, didn't take much to be basically functional. That's all good, right? Um, but then, then Google decided to push the other end of the direction by releasing the Chromebook Pixel that was released in 2013 and 2015. Those are super high-end Chromebooks. The high-end one cost $1,700. The low-end one cost $1,000. Beautiful pieces of hardware. I've never actually used one as a user but I have played with others, and it was an extremely high-end piece of hardware that made the, the Chrome platform a, a joy to use and a, a really great user experience. But at $1,700, uh, if that were my only machine, I'd be more likely, I think, to buy a, a MacBook a Pro, for example. Uh, even the lower-end ones would, would be um, you know much less than $1,700, which would be the high-end of the Pixels. Um, and then now there seems like that there's a movement towards kind of middle ground Chromebooks that, you know, uh, not the low end, $120 on sale, ARM-based processors, not the $1,000 Chromebooks, but somewhere between the $350 and $700 price point with, you know, fast, power-efficient Intel chips, 4 gigabytes, and in some cases, 8 gigabytes of memory, 
And although it's not particularly useful, 64 gigabytes, 128 gigabyte um, hard drives um, uh, on board. And then what I think is interesting is, um, you know, uh, high-end hardware or at least higher-end um, hardware that allows you to do things like get high-resolution screens, um, you know, flip the the uh, monitor around to create the tent effect or a tablet effect, and then, of course, the touchscreen concept. And that's where I'm pretty sure that a lot of these Chromebooks are going to end up going. Um, if you're talking about a five-year adoption cycle, $1,700 for a MacBook, a uh, middle-ground MacBook is probably going to last you five or six years. We're working but, about nine forty for a low end air. I mean, I'm looking at at air yeah. now. So, but still nine forty to a four hundred. You know, right? We could. We, I mean, but, you could double. You could double your. I mean, you could you could turn it over in in two and a half years or three years, I guess, if you wanted to right. get that kind of trade off. Well, and then you know the Chromebooks then maybe become more attractive at three hundred fifty dollars for the low end middle ground ones. Then maybe you turn those around every two to three years, or you know they become different. Uh, pieces of hardware in your building as they move around from, you know, primary labs to secondary labs, maybe to student checkout machines and that sort of thing. Um, but the thing that, that keeps kind of on my mind here that people don't really talk about is that there is an impressive architecture available to IT directors and teachers oh for gosh. that matter. You may remember that, um, that there was a, an interesting piece of software on the back end of Google Apps for Education that was called um, Google Play for Education. And the idea behind Google Play for Education was that you could take tablets, which is what Google Play for Education was aimed at. Unfortunately, there were few tablets that were on their cleared list. And, and to be clear, Google Play for Education has been shuttered. Um, it, it, uh, in early 2016, they quietly um, uh, eliminated that software suite. But the great thing about it was that it it allowed multiple users to utilize a tablet, which has been a long-standing criticism of the iPad in the classroom, is that they're kind of meant to be personal devices as opposed to, uh, you know, what a lot of, of, of schools do with them, which is to have them used by multiple students. Um, second, it allowed you to push apps out to the, the tablet so that you could create an app suite, sometimes period by period if you wanted to. You could push out... Um, and it would delete or or uh, uh, push out new applications. So uh, this week we're going to use these seven apps, and next week it's going to eliminate those seven apps and roll out new apps. But imagine for a moment the hardware um, of these these new Chromebooks um, with that same power that you're going to push out, you know, 13 applications for a particular project or a particular suite of applications, or maybe you're going to license a commercial app. It suddenly becomes really interesting that the promise of, of, of Google Play for Education could be utilized in this Chromebook architecture with apps available to it. And I find that to be enormously fascinating. And I've never had to roll out a large amount of hardware, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that that's a pretty elegant solution in comparison to what's available now in the mobile space. It's huge. And so I've got to say a couple caveats in, in responding to this. Number one, whenever I talk about Google, I sometimes feel like I got to tell people how much I still love Apple. You know, here's, yeah. <laughs> here's my iPad right here, you know, right. with our links and, and taking a look at stuff. I'm on my Mac, my, yeah, my 11 inch MacBook right now. Um, I love me all, you know, all the Apple goodness that I can, that I can have, but. I, our school has a, has a little over 900 students, pre-K through 12. And so this is, I'm coming up on a year and a half as, as technology director. Um, I'm in a fortunate position to be able to, to be directly responsible, uh, along with, with our teachers and our tech team, for managing 10 carts of Chromebooks now. 
and a, a cart of iPads that, or I'm sorry, a cart of, um, of, uh, of MacBook laptops. We've, we've got all of our teachers with MacBooks. <clears throat> and then we've got about a hundred iPads under management in our mobile device management. So I've, I've had a pretty, um, you know, deep dive opportunity to experience the differences in managing these devices and what it takes in order to push them out. I have never wanted to be that, that IT guy who has a policy and, and, and does something to make my life easy and to, and, you know, to not, to ignore basically the classroom. I don't want to do that. I want to do what is best for learning, what is best for teachers. But I cannot understate how staggeringly easy it is to manage Chromebooks relative to iPads and what you're talking about right now, Jason, with, with apps, we learned about the, um, and I think Ben, we may need, we, Ben just joined us. Welcome Ben. Um, we, yeah, he's just muted. So we may need, may need some here, buzz. We're getting a little bit of bleed over. Um, when it, when we, we learned about the Google classroom Chrome extension and this capability that you can have a, a link. And when your students are logged into Google classroom, boom, you know, you push it out. Uh, the next week I went ahead and, and I pushed that out to all 260 or whatever, however many, you know, Chromebooks we've got under management. Uh, it is staggering. And so the way in which Google has lined it themselves up to be a cloud managed device, um, to be very secure, to not have the security issues, which, which I've of course played windows for years, but you know, have increasingly come to the Mac as well. Uh, just the simplicity of the power wash, you know, I'm just going to be gushing over and over again. So I do believe, my wife was just doing a workshop down in Moore, Oklahoma today for teachers with the iPad, you know, making and creating uh, the green screen app by doing the book creator app. There are fantastic apps for creating uh, media and being able to share. But that's why I'm so interested in the Adobe announcements. I'm going to be interested in the way in which apps on Android are going to allow users to create and make and publish and especially record their voice and, and mix media in that way. Um, and, you know, we, we've got Ben on our show now to talk about the stylus. Uh, ben, is it at all a big deal that a Chromebook would have a stylus, you know, in a classroom? Would that, would that transform things at all? Oh, I think you're muted. We're not hearing you. We're not hearing audio from, from Ben. Ben Wilkoff, by the way, coming to us from Denver, Colorado. He, uh, the mute did, did go away from your, your icon, but. I think he's on, he may be on a different machine. So he's, jo he's joining from a loaner laptop. So if not, he's going to use sign language and we're going to, we're going to be able to, he's making we'll interpret it up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, let me talk for just a minute about, about iPads for a second. One of the things that I think is uh, uh, that, and I, I may annoy some people by saying this, um, you know, for our millions of, of listeners in, in Silicon Valley, but, um, you know, and, and to be clear, I have to also say, you know, you could pry my, my iPad for my cold, dead hands. So it's, it's a really great device for me. I carry it everywhere. I've got a, uh, an LTE chip in it so that it can, you know, we can be able to see, or I can see networks and stuff. It's, it's pretty, pretty rocking, but, uh, you know, I think the iPad would have 
would have made a bigger splash in K-12 schools if they weren't such a pain to manage. And I realize that there are good solutions in 2017 for this. They're not as elegant as as other Apple solutions for things, but if they had been manageable in 2010, 11, 12, I think the iPad would be wiping the floor um, uh, uh, or, or, or we're using every other platform to wipe the floor with. In fact, I think it would have uh, you know, finally put uh, uh, labs to rest a lot earlier than 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 they ultimately than the the loss of desktop um, uh, use with mobile device expansion uh, ultimately created. And the bottom line is is that you know, they're like I agree with you, Wes, and I applaud you for saying that as a tech director you would never make a decision based only on that. But I do think a lot of tech directors do utilize the the, the management as a, as a, as an important criteria. And I think you'd have had a hard time um, in in a lot of cases adopting the iPads. Um, even though they're long lasting, um, I know people with iPad twos and threes, these are, you know, six and, and five year old platforms that are, are working just fine in context of whatever they're using them for. And the bottom line is, is that, uh, they weren't easy to manage. And so that's where I think. Uh, at least Google and designing Chrome OS, Chromebooks has, has really made a, a, a big splash here. And part of the reason why they are such a, an important factor in schools. Ben, do you have a functioning microphone now? Oh, he doesn't. No, he's shaking his head. Ugh, bummer. If uh, if you want to join by phone, I've had pretty good luck with with the app. I've had to join Hangouts, you know, by iPad or by phone. So I know talking in loving terms as we are about the Chromebook, joining from an iOS device may seem. Of course, you may have an Android device, but if you want to give give that a shot, feel free. Oh, he's going to hop on an iPad. Okay. See, this is a test. <laughs> what we're trying to find out tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is just how many devices are in the home of Ben right. And I have yeah. actually set foot in the home of Ben Wilkoff, and I will say that he has an amazing dog. He's probably not even listening to this, but uh, he, he had a very – he has a neat little media room. You, you probably never imagined this for a tech person, but a uh, very, very cool projector, and his dog – um, was actually watching the action on the video game and uh, <laughs> responding in a way that was pretty pretty amazing. So I think he has audio. I'm hearing he's plugging himself in. We're, we're working on it. You got it. We're hearing his voice, the magical voice from Denver, the guru of all hybrid uh, Chromebooks today, Ben Wilkoff. Well, we'll, we'll see. And it's interesting because I'm joining from the, the, the Samsung Chromebook Plus. And uh, it is a demo device in every sense of the word. My understanding <laughs> is that this is the only Chromebook Plus in the state of Colorado. The only in the state And so, uh, <laughs> so uh, we we got an early demo version of it. They're they're not coming out for at least another couple months in, in yep. sort of full. Uh, full release, um, but the stylus is uh, full release. Full release. Um, that it works, um, but there is very little soft. Um, but that is really written to take care of or to take full advantage of it, uh, or to full advantage of really sort of combing through the uh, the googling through find things that are uh, play uh, you know fully uh, compatible. Uh, you'll fully catch the video that I made earlier. Uh, you'll say. Uh, that I uh, loaded up uh, Minecraft Pocket Edition, loaded up, and that's a pretty resource-intensive app. And, that, um, and it, it uh, 
but at most end, it, it, it worked. It did not expand to the full size of the screen. Uh, you know, there are some size of the screws where it, it doesn't, you know, fully render directly. And so it becomes, uh, an, uh, of, comes up, right? So it can do these things. It doesn't yet do them well. And so, uh, I think, and that was sort of my assessment even before I got the device. I was like, this is not ready for prime time yet, but I am so glad that they are looking at it and that they are, are striving for it. And I think in the next couple of months, they're going to figure out some kinks. They go through and get on, because I'm on stable channel, because I wanted to see what it would look like. I think if I went down to, you know, beta or even canary, I might be able to uh, to have some more of the, the tablet-like features. Um you know, but even something like uh, when you're writing and you go into tablet mode, sometimes the screen will shut off because it thinks that it's supposed to, you know, be done with whatever it was trying to do. And so uh, so it's just really interesting to see, you know, where things are, are not quite ready um, for, for prime time. But I, I really like uh, the build quality uh, of these two devices. I like the one, the Ace, uh, Asus uh, C, 213 build quality even better and it's got these dual um stereo speakers on either side that the samsung doesn't have um but they are they are at least at retail you know 450 dollars and so um uh, but we were we were talking with the samsung rep and they were talking about how they think that if you're buying a, a decent amount of them that if you're or if you're looking at them as a district-wide solution that schools can, you know, start purchasing and things like that, that they think will start, it will be down below about half of what you could expect to pay for, uh, what, you know, a threat to pay for a two-gig iPad or something like that. Ben, your uh, audio is, is, at least for me, I don't know what it's doing for Peggy and, and uh, Jason, but it's... It, it is it is cut in and out a little bit. Um, it's not it's sounding a little bit like you've taken on an, uh, Android, uh, not just not to say the the Google Android, but you know you've you've become mechanized a little bit. The voice is becoming a little bit. I don't. Are you on the iPad or are you? Which one are you connected to? Yeah, now I'm on the iPad, and I'm sure that the quality You're is smooth. Like yeah, twelve times better. And so yeah, it, just, it is. It is. It's just, you know, like the iPad still just works. You're yeah. well, you're on the bleeding edge, right? You're yeah. using that Chromebook. You are literally on the bleeding edge of Chrome um, technology. And and what I would just say to this uh, with the tech director hat on, and I've had an opportunity in the last week, this week, to talk with several of our administrators about BYOD one to one. You know, um, we have we, we allow students at our high school to, to bring devices. Ideally, we're going to have this good conversation together with faculty about what we want to do, right? We're not just going to be talk about what device are we going to get. We're going to talk about what do we want to do, what kind of curriculum do we want to use, and what kinds of things do we want to do with ideas. Um, so I, uh, I'm excited by it. It is a challenge. Uh, I have to say, you know, both you guys have helped shape my thinking about this. And I, I think I want some pioneers. I want to encourage and invite some pioneers on our campus that would like to experiment in this direction to do so. But it doesn't, it doesn't seem just, as you've said, you know, ready for prime time yet. Um, you know, I, I think we need to do some more, more pioneering, but we're, we're definitely on the edge of, of exciting things. And, 
you know, I'll, we'll, put, we'll put in the show notes for, for those of you, edtechsr.com slash links. Look for episode 38, and we'll put the link right there to Ben's review that, that he posted tonight. So it's about a 15-minute review. What, what was your big takeaway of doing the head-to-head comparison? Not to say we won't watch the uh, video, but what's the, your – Yeah, no, no, no. But the, the big takeaway was that the stylus really could be pretty compelling um, and that uh, – that just having access to the whole Google Play Store, like just looking through and seeing what would work and what wouldn't. But like, I actually prefer using the Google Docs uh, native app, the Android app to using it on the web. Like the way in which comments show up on the Google Docs app and in the slides app is so much better than the way they sort of float in the air on the web version. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I find that the apps um, that Google puts out for mobile devices are way better than their web counterparts in many ways, although they still don't have some of them available. And so, um, but I, I think that that's really compelling. And I haven't looked at the show notes yet, but uh, uh, Microsoft also released, a, had a big announcement today. So you, I'm hopeful that you guys talk about that one too. Well, why don't you take, just take that as an article and give us your, give us your take on it. Okay, uh, so I uh, I was looking at it this afternoon, um, and clearly Microsoft is realizing that that Google, and to a lesser extent Apple, but Apple had the first mover advantage. So um, you know they they had a lot of early adopter stuff with with iPads, but that you know that Microsoft or that Google and Apple are just eating their lunch in the education market, and. Um, so they put out a $189 Windows tablet, or they're partnering to, to do that. And they created this management software in Fuse that uh, is essentially like a Chrome management console for Windows 10 machines, uh, which is a totally different value proposition than they have ever had. They have never had a other than like total OEM lock-in on Microsoft Office. They have never really had a play in education. Um, other than, hey, our products have always been used, so you're going to keep on using our products. And so, um, you know, once they sort of lost that lead, it was very difficult for them to get it back. But they they are coming to play. And so I'm, I'm really interested in seeing, uh, like literally in their press release, they are talking about going after Chromebooks as a, as a competitor. And so like, for them to recognize Chromebooks, because they were like poo-pooing Chromebooks for years, like, oh, it's not a real computer. And, you know, like they, they had p- the Pawn Stars guy come on and like say, what can I get for my Chromebook? Well, nothing, because it's not a real computer. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, it, to me, it's it's like they recognize that there is something going on here and that educators are not willing to put up with sort of uh, vendor lock-in anymore. One of the most impressive demos, and this is uh, Tommy Snyder, who is our halftime debate coach, halftime IT guy uh, at our at our school. <clears throat> he He's a Windows phone guy, and he's a Windows guy pretty much. And, you know, he showed me how his Windows phone can just plug right into his screen and his keyboard, and he has full-blown Windows. And it re- it reminded me of one of these futuristic videos that I think Corning did, you know, Corning Glass about the future and the kitchen, you know, where you bring in and you flip this over and it's on this screen and it's over here. Um, 
it, it is definitely exciting to see this kind of innovation to, to take the educational lens on this, right? Cause that's what we're supposed to do here on the EdTech Situation Room. Um, I think as always, we have to be careful not to be so swept away with the glitz of the bleeding edge that we lose track of, of practically, you know, what can be done today with the tools. And again, what do we want to do? You know, uh, Microsoft says, what do you, where do you want to go? I say, what do you want to create? What do you want to make today? And so these are exciting developments. And, you know, I think we tend with our, with our focus on the news in this show, we tend to be, you know, very oriented towards the, the bleeding edge and the leading edge of things, but hugely exciting uh, developments and definitely things that we, we need to, to pay attention to. Jason, do you have any comments on the Microsoft announcement? I do uh, a few actually. Um, first and foremost, um, I want to be clear that that one of the reasons why in the last twelve months I've been less of a Mac user is because I've I've kind of rediscovered PCs again, and Windows Ten has made a big difference for me. Windows Ten is a quality operating system, and although it's not nearly as stable as I want it to be, it's way more stable than any other ver- version of Windows I've used going back to Windows three point one back in the day. Right? Like it is a very very stable operating system, and it looks nice, and it works nicely, and um, it's easy to get installed and going, but the bottom line is I've not bought any new Windows PCs with Windows 10 on it. Instead, I focused on buying used corporate, um, uh, not even refurbs, like like things off lease, so four and five year old Lenovo laptops and throwing an SSD drive in it and eight or 16 gigabytes of RAM, installing Windows 10, and these have been beautiful, fast, stable machines, way better than something even more expensive new on the market. And my point here is not that I'm a huge nerd, although let's be honest, I am. Uh, my point is is that um, the the I really, what I don't want to happen, and I'm really interested to see some of these hardware platforms that Microsoft was touting in their announcement. There's a uh, Lenovo N24 with um, a pen that comes with it that's going to be about $300 a piece. Um, I really want to use these platforms to see, you know, um, uh, how functional they are. But I would say you're better off going to buy, speaking of Lenovo, a Lenovo... T430, which is their three or four year old 14 inch laptop. Uh, you can probably buy one used on eBay from a corporate refurbisher for $150 to $200. Um, add in some more RAM to it, an SSD drive, new battery. You're closer to $300 now, which is the price there. And although it's not going to be as portable and probably not as good of battery life as the Lenovo advertised as part of Microsoft's announcement, it's going to be a faster, more responsive and a, a more power user laden machine. And I do think that part of the problem with Microsoft going after Chrome OS is that Windows 10 is not a low-resource operating system. It is a full-blown operating system with um, uh, hardware requirements, and um, unfortunately, it, it, it does take uh, uh, its toll on low-end hardware. You may remember that two years ago or so, there was a movement, the first movement towards, well, actually, the fourth or fifth movement towards low-end PCs um, when um, Microsoft uh, Windows 8.1 was available on. There was the, um, the HP Stream devices. The Stream 11 was an 11-inch laptop. The Stream 
2013. It was a 13-inch laptop. These were $179, $199 laptops. I actually purchased one for my mom. Um, it was really great for simple web searching, but choked on everything else. And when we upgraded to Windows 10, there wasn't even enough space to install uh, uh, the, the update packs because there was an only a 32 gigabyte SSD hard drive in the platform. And um, I do worry that if they're if Microsoft wants to go after Chromebooks, it almost feels like they need a different operating system to do that. And I understand why Microsoft wouldn't want to go in that direction, but I disagree with the notion that I know I have heard tech directors make the argument of is that if you're going to spend you know, $300 on a Chromebook, you might as well buy the equivalent $300 PC because it can do all this extra stuff. But what I would question is how well it can do those things, right? A $300 PC can run Photoshop, but only in a way that's going to make you want to pull your own hair out, right? Whereas an app-based Photoshop-like experience on a Chromebook that runs an Android app is probably going to be a better a user experience. And, and one of the things that people don't really realize, you know, you have your phone and here's my, my, my Android Motorola phone. I love this phone. It's really awesome. But the processor in this phone is actually pretty slow in comparison to a desktop quality processor, right? We're talking about even low-end Intel hardware on a Chromebook that's running these applications. It's probably going to seem a lot faster than even uh, uh, the lower end of the high-end phones um, and run those applications very well, whereas a resource-intensive desktop application on Windows is going to be a pretty sad experience. So I think Microsoft's going in the right direction. I think they do need to be looking at, um, you know, tablet-wise, desktop-wise, uh, notebook-wise, laptop-wise, convertible-wise. You know, what can we provide that's that's interesting and compelling for schools, easy to manage, has kind of that Chromebook um, ease of use and feel, but. I want to use these devices and make sure that we're just not adopting super low NPCs. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, we have spent a little more than half our show tonight talking about uh, Chromebooks and, and Microsoft a little bit there at, at the end. And, you know, generally we're going to, we're going to cover more articles, but these, these are huge issues. Um, but I think what I'd like to do is, is toss out my favorite article of the week. And I'm going to, I'm going to cover these three and then, uh, we'll toss it to, to you, Ben, for comment and Jason. Um, I put these under the headline security, privacy and surveillance. And those of you that have tuned into the show know that we tend to touch on some similar issues each time and sometimes not in the show notes on our EdTech SR blog, but on the, the Google doc that's there uh, under links. We kind of categorize them. Uh, three different articles and, and I'm going to do them in reverse order. Um, BBC News, January 27th, U.S. libraries hit by ransomware attack. We continue to hear more and more about phishing attacks. Uh, we just had a, a faculty member this week uh, with a with a phishing attack that was pretty tricky that, that actually I think did get him to put his Google credentials in. It then forwarded to a Dropbox link, which he knew was really weird, and ended up, you know, deauthorizing those things. And we don't think that compromised things at school. But uh, just really... I've said this before, as a tech director, you know, I, I take on the responsibility for security of our devices and our network, and it, you know, we need to pay attention to these things. The, the library system here in the article was able to restore from backups. Uh, we all need to make sure that we're backing up our stuff. Uh, ideally that we have tried the backup because you don't really know if that backup is valid until you've had to, to restore from it. And then moving to the cloud, you know, having more things, whether it's on Google Drive, it's on uh, 
on uh, at Microsoft's uh, OneDrive or or something else. Um, I've I've heard some I heard of, I've heard a really good success story from another school that had a, a ransomware attack and and had things on Microsoft OneDrive. In fact, they work with Microsoft and they backed the clock up one second before the ransomware hit, and then everything was restored to that point. It's pretty phenomenal. And if anybody listening um, has heard of or knows of somebody at a school who is a Google school that has faced a ransomware attack and kind of how how Google has worked with them and helped them out. I would be really interested in that. Um, the next article, just really fast, uh, from the South China Morning Post, which I'm sure everyone listening is, re- is reading every day, um, but it's China tightens the Great Firewall by declaring unauthorized VPN services illegal. Apparently, China is about to do a pretty major sort of decade uh, time frame every 10 years transfer of power uh, and they are really tightening down on VPNs. Uh, VPNs are virtual private networks. They allow you to create a secure tunnel so that your traffic is not viewed by others. And it's really important in places where the internet is heavily censored. Ah, think schools too, but think China, think the Middle East, think, you know, authoritarian governments that don't want you to use Twitter or have access to, let's say, Wikipedia articles about Tiananmen Square, um, that those things are restricted. So I think that is a reminder to me about how wonderful it is that we do live in the relatively free United States of America, uh, how important it is that we talk about digital citizenship and talk about digital advocacy and, you know, that we help educate our students. That That's a significant current event um, because, um, you know, there have been different waves of crackdown in, in China and having been over there a few, I guess, four times now, um, you know, we, we used VPNs all the time at the schools where I was. That's how we were able to get to PB Wiki or PB Works or whatever and, and to different, uh, different sites. But the last article underneath this heading is one that Jason tweeted this week and, and sent me. It's the New York Times. This was back from November of 2016, but it's called The Secret Agenda of a Facebook Quiz. And if you read any article from, from this week, certainly the Chromebook stuff is huge. But this article is really jarring because the company that worked with the Trump campaign as well as the anti-Brexit campaign in Europe claims that they have now thousands of data points. I think they say something like three to 4,000 data points about, you know, millions of Americans, like two to 300 uh, million Americans, United States citizens. And they're able to do very nuanced things in these political campaigns like ascertain whether you would respond more to sort of a, a racist, you know, anti-immigration, anti, um, well, a, a racist sort of take on, 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 on an issue like, like immigration or, or gun control. If you're going to be more, uh, responding to, you know, the father and the son heading out to, you know, hunt together, holding their guns, but, the way in which these this amount of data has been collected and then the way in which it's being utilized, and part of this is because our laws in the United States are very lax about what third parties can or can't do, um, it's a very jarring article. So that's a lot of stuff under the, under the umbrella of, of security, privacy, and surveillance. Um, either of you guys want to comment? Oh, Jason, you're muted. I make a quick comment here to say that, um, 
you know, we keep wringing our hands about how nothing seems to be what it was um, four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago, 16 years ago in regards to politics. And I certainly don't want to then say Facebook you know, caused the populist wave in the United States to sweep in, um, you know, uh, candidate X or go against candidate Y. But I do think that, that the weird thing about polling and the fact that polls were so off this year in comparison to past years, and it's not just in the United States, it's also in Western European elections as well. One of the things that might explain that is the fact that, um, you know, that, that data isn't as accurate anymore as other places we can go for that data, like social networks. And, um, you know, I, I talk all the time. I give a pretty regular presentation now about Facebook and Google and privacy, and, and I'll give a full disclosure. I'm, I'm fully comfortable with my data with Google because I feel like there's an economic interest for them to keep it private, right? And something that Google will do that almost no other service will do is they'll actually show you your data, and you can you know take your data out of the system, and, and you know what they're storing on you, and, and they, they're pretty clear about why, and that's just due to um, you know advertising factors. But that said, you know the notion of that particular article, which I found incredibly fascinating too, Wes, was that you're taking these data sources now and aggregating them together. The data itself probably doesn't mean a whole lot in, in, you know, in itself, but now that they're becoming very nuanced in the ways they can take data and draw pictures on people, whether they know your name or not, may inform messaging, politics, advertising, media in ways that we really have never seen in history and are probably wholly unprepared to react to in a participatory democracy. And so um, I know I, you know, I'm a social studies teacher by trade before I became uh, 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 the online schooling dude in Montana. Um, I, as a government teacher, I think I'd want my students to be leery of these technologies until we know better about how they impact us, who they're informing, what the situations are. So I think that's a, um, it's it's a troubling trend and something that we need to be very cognizant of. Ben, you have any comments on that? Uh, yeah, actually, um, rather timely. Uh, I I have been listening a whole bunch to Note to Self, the podcast um, that talks a lot about privacy issues and ways in which to sort of tackle. Um, this uh, this balance of of privacy and the services that we want to keep using and, and and enjoy using and uh, they actually are running a, a project called the Privacy Paradox um, that's launching January 30th um, and so getting in on on that project I'm very excited about. Um, where essentially we're going to be talking through, you know, what are we willing to uh, to, to give away? Um, and the, the most recent one uh, had sort of this conversation around um, just how hard fought a lot of the privacy laws were for uh, telephony. And so there were a couple of in, uh, situations where they had to fight to keep uh, records of people's phone calls uh, out of the hands of, uh, of the government, out of the hands of other institutions, third parties, things like that. Um, and if we essentially don't fight for those same things on our sort of equivalent our watch. Uh, platform, yeah, exactly, 
you know, then we're really doing an injustice to future generations. So just like they paid it forward to, to us, we should be doing the same. And so I see a lot of this as, yes, there are some concerns here. Um, we need to think about this platform differently than we thought about other platforms. But there's also very much like, you know, we could have a default of privacy and then go from there versus looking at uh, some of these other options. Uh, I mean, even what happened with Evernote uh, recently where they did a, a default, you know, opt-in for allowing employees to read Evernote notes for machine learning purposes to check to see if the machine learning was working and things like that. Like it just doesn't add up in terms of that. That should not be the default. It should not be opt out uh, or excuse me, automatic opt in. You should be able to uh, opt in if you wish to do these things, um, but it should not be a default. And I think if we can sort of strive for that and say, okay, we have a default of privacy. We create our Google Docs, they're defaulted to private. We create, you know, like the, mm -hmm. the, each one of these platforms, we have a default of privacy and then we share out from there rather than the other way around. Right. Then I think that we are in a much better place um, versus some of these other options, which it's just like as open as open can be. And then you, you know, uh, really constrict it and constrain. So I will drop the link to the episode I think you're talking about. I actually listened to it today in the car called The Bookie, The Phone Booth, and The FBI with Laura Donahue. Uh, she tweets exactly along with right. others yep. at Georgetown CPT. It's a note to self podcast about the Fourth Amendment, about the founding fathers, about, um, their, their desire, James Madison's desire to prohibit what was called, was it an open warrant or what was it called? It was like a blanket thing. When yeah, they would, either blanket or universal warrant, yeah. Yeah, yep. universal warrant. I think that was the term. Yep. Uh, pretty pretty eye-opening. And um, I really think that there is an important space for us to be talking about these things uh, very, very thoughtfully in digital citizenship. And so we're having an opportunity at our school to, you know, be adopting a digital citizenship curriculum and really looking at that. And I'm – I uh, I think that we need to be pushing forward, you know, be at the bleeding edge of conversations about that because right. it is happening at, at the speed of creativity, at the speed of thought, at, you know, uh, at, at the speed of, of the internet. Um, and so we, uh, I think are living in a generation that is, is dangerously close to ab, to just sort of not abdicating, but just kind of shrugging off meh. You know, the, the, the privacy rights that have been a huge deal and an important part of our value system right. and that probably people are are not understanding the implications of. And um, so anyway, that's that that is good stuff. Uh, well, we've got about 10 minutes till the top of the hour. I do want to talk about a couple <laughs> other articles um, and we've definitely got Geeks of the Week to do. So, uh, Jason, is there another article you'd like to take us to? Um, I, I'm just going to point out one that I think uh, maybe a, a nuanced reader might or a nuanced listener might want to re go back and read. Uh, there's a really great article today by Walt Mossberg and Recode um, about uh, Firefox. And the only thing that's, that's super interesting to me 
well, the many things about Super Interesting to me about Firefox is that first, um, you may remember that it was first the kind of real first alternative browser to Internet Explorer. And I remember having this argument less than uh, less than five years ago about how Internet Explorer was still dominant as a browser and people were reluctant to adopt the other things. It was harder to manage and yada, yada, yada. And now Chrome is completely dominating um uh, the browser wars, uh, 73.7% as of December 2016 of, of, uh, browser usage now is Chrome. Um, uh, uh, Firefox is hanging in second place at 15.5 and IE is down to 4.8%, which is extraordinary to me that switched that, that far around. But friends, friends don't let friends use IE. Let's just remember. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I remember getting arguments with people like you're clearly having a worse, experience on, on, on Internet Explorer, install Chrome in your district, or if you don't want to do that, at least install Firefox and, you know, um, lots of pushback uh, back in the day. But uh, Firefox is still around. I always keep a, fi- a copy of Firefox on desktop and laptops because there's there's the one thing that's oftentimes can sw- fix weird web stuff is just to switch browsers um, and see what happens. But uh, interesting article about the current, uh, uh, current interesting topics at the folks that are developing Firefox and worth your time um, if you are a browser geek. Very good. And I would also point out that we've got the Wired article from January 23rd. Trump's FCC pick doesn't bode well for net neutrality. And we've had interesting articles. Tom Wheeler, I think, is the outgoing FCC chairman. And he came from industry. And you would kind of think, oh, he came from industry. He's going to be in the pocket of, of AT&T and, um, you know, the, the big cable companies and everything. But he's really been a strong advocate for um, for net neutrality, which is critical, which is a key element of uh, the end-to-end design of the Internet and uh, we've we've seen that slip in some pretty big ways with T-Mobile. I mean, you can see where customers like this, the binge on campaign to say, you know, certain things are not going to be metered and they're just going to be they're going to be free. But what's really a bit even more scary is what AT&T is doing with their own service. You know, T-Mobile's done this with with uh, Spotify, with with iTunes, with uh, Apple Music and other things like that. So yes, what's going to happen under the Trump administration with the FCC is a is a big question mark. And there's important roles here for us to to be staying aware of current events and to be advocates. You know, we had to to fight. Um, oh, what was the big campaign? Um, you know, that was over. Um, I mean, some of some of this is over obscenity and and things like that. But what was the one? That the whole internet rose up against. You know, something that was about. Um, uh, digital rights management and copyright and redefining. Uh, I'm drawing a blank, but anyway, it was, it was not that long, not that yeah. long ago that we saw a huge rise up. And and I would say uh, a, a shout out to Larry Lessig and his book, The Future of Ideas, one of the best books I've read that really talks a lot about the architecture of the internet and and why it has been able to grow in the way that it has. Um, and it's just, it's about so much more than money and corporations. And what's really happened over time is not only that governments have realized this could become a phenomenal surveillance tool for us to surveil our people and corporations the same way, you know, you know businesses have really adopted the internet and uh, focused us on, um, you know, thinking about the ways in which, you know, products are monetized, things are sold. Uh, there is still a huge place for sharing. And I think as we mentioned with that surveillance article and the privacy stuff, um, I know that we're, we're all here pretty big advocates for, um, 
for sharing and for the benefits of digital sharing. Um, so Marta has put into the chat, some Web 2.0 tools do not function with Chrome. Uh, we've run into that issue actually with Tinkercad, which I'm going to talk about in my Geek of the Week. Um, they knew, they now have a beta version that's been made to, to do that. But yeah, we saw that early on with, with Firefox as well when my bank only, you know, worked with Internet Explorer and then <laughs> right. you know, we had to have those things develop compatibility. All right. Well, got about five minutes till the top of the hour. We usually go a little bit beyond. Um, Anybody want to start with the Geek of the Week? Uh, mine's not very exciting, so I'll, I'll jump in and do mine first. It's really useful, just not uh, too geeky. Um, I posted a, a blog post today at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. Um, a really great video. I've been asked some questions uh, three or four times, actually, in January about USB-C, which is the um, new method for peripherals to plug into laptops. Uh, there's Wes showing off his USB-C cord. Um, it's a really exciting uh, uh, new uh, standard and, and hardware platform. The problem is is that it's too new and it takes a lot of thinking to kind of adapt your existing way of doing things to USB-C. So um, I've been asked several questions about this in, in the last couple of weeks. And over the weekend, Lawn.TV, which is a really great kind of how-to video series on the YouTube's uh, released his USB-C survival guide. And so for folks that have not thought about this or recently received um, a Chromebook or a MacBook or one of the newer Windows PCs that's dominated by USB-C ports as opposed to the different ports that were kind of the older model of um, you know, the, the peripheral role, then it, it's about 10 minute video that walks you through your options and how you get video and how you get hardwired networking, how you get card readers. And so, um, that's featured today on the Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncce.org. There we go. And in the chat room, uh, Peggy has pointed out that the future of ideas by Larry Lessig is available as a free PDF download on his website. So pretty cool. You're constrained by the PDF format, but Hey, you can't beat free. So grab that for, for your device, whatever you want to read on. Ben, what do you have for us for a geek of the week? So I finally bit the bullet last weekend and started getting myself into raspberry Pi land. And, uh, I wanted to do it for, for work reasons, but actually the biggest was I, I wanted to work on a project with my daughter. Uh, she's 10 years old and wanted to see how much she could do on her own, uh, how much she needed me. And once I, you know, had put Raspbian on the Raspberry Pi, um, I had her go to the education side of the raspberrypi.org and choose one of the recipes, essentially, that she wanted to try. She chose this one, Window on the Weather, it took us two sessions of about an hour, hour and a half. Um, but she was able to do this activity where she uh, was able to create her own API key in the weather uh, application for, um, you know, to, to get the weather data, to run a Python script, to create the, the code in Scratch from the recipe and enter in the the the, um, the variables from the um, you know within scratch and get it to work she even drew all of the sprites and uh, and so you can check out my daughter's version it doesn't work because you don't have the python script running on the web version of scratch uh, but you can see the you know what she drew and everything like that and I was like 
this is pretty fundamentally different than the opportunities I had when I was 10 to create things. And it just makes me so excited about what's possible in the future and just how little she cared about typing the Python script into Terminal and how much it would scare the majority of the kids that I I sort of uh, work with most times. And I'm just like, what is different about, and I think it's probably just, she was doing it with someone she trusts and knows and like that she was uh, just willing to go for it. And it was, so anyway, I'm going to do, do a lot more with that. Uh, that's a little bit longer geek of the week, but it was, it was a wonderful uh, experience. And I'm so glad your dog has made an appearance. Introduce us to your dog. This is Cassie, uh, and she is not normally allowed on the couch, but I feel like for uh, for Geeks of the Week, you definitely have to have Cassie for that. We we welcome animals and as they participate. So my golden retriever got to have a have a uh, photo bomb a week ago or so ago. So my week my week of the week my week of the geek my geek of the week is uh, a Minecraft and Tinkercad and 3D printing sort of uh, synthesis. We have a, a sixth grade French teacher. No, uh, sorry. Um, well, actually, our French teacher um, for sixth grade has done some 3D printing stuff, too. But in this case, social studies teacher uh, Sarah Zedlitz, who has collaborated with our librarian last year on a Roman structures project. Um, the last couple summers, our librarian, uh, Michelle Freeland, has offered some sh- little multi-week classes or week-long classes for students to learn about 3D printing. They've learned Tinkercad, which, if you're not familiar, is a web-based free environment for 3D digital design. Design. And so, um, you know, I've I've gotten to use Minecraft EDU and played Minecraft. And and for you geeky Minecrafters, I had my daughter taught me about enchantments, and I got up to level thirty five. And I'm trying to get my my level what is it called my plus three fortune enchantment on my pickaxe, and I, I haven't gotten it yet. But I digress. This um, Geek of the Week link is to what's what Tinkercad has created that allows you to take 3D creations from Tinkercad and put them right into Minecraft. And so in this case, the sixth grade students are going to be creating the Parthenon or creating buildings with, with you know, Roman columns or, or different kinds of things. And I on Monday, we had Minecraft Monday. Um, I showed a group of about eight of them, you know, how they could use Minecraft EDU to, to be able to build um, on a server that we have at school, which actually I've still got a firewall issue to to get resolved first thing in the morning, but the, the Tuesday was the Tinkercraft Tinkercad Tuesday, and uh, in addition to seeing how we could use Tinkercad, and incidentally to what Marta said about Chrome using the beta version because the beta version is compatible with Chrome, um, there can be some problems if you're just using the standard version. Boy, were these kids ever excited about that prospect. And so I am energized by this. My wife just actually uh, had someone off her wish list purchase a 3D printer, which got put together this week, and we're bringing home this weekend. And so we are hopeful that the Friar Home will be micromanufacturing some small plastic items, which probably may bear some resemblance to Minecraft figures uh, this weekend, and we're going to be exploring how we can take creations from Tinkercad into Minecraft and possibly either way. And the exciting thing is, as the kids have designed some things in Tinkercad, there's the possibility of not only having them physically in their hands that they've printed on the 3D printer, but putting all those objects together in the same Minecraft world and then having a virtual tour, which we could create a video of. So 
that is the Geek of the Week. So we need to probably usher ourselves out of here. Uh, we will typically tell you who we are again and where you can find us online. We also want to remind you that you can find all of the show notes and links at edtechsr.com slash links. And we will continue to be posting audio versions as well as archived video versions. We encourage you to subscribe to us on YouTube and please let us know that if you are listening to the show, you can tweet out to EdTechSR and we'll also include uh, links to all of our panelists' uh, Twitter accounts in the show notes. So, Ben, tell us where folks can read more of your amazing ideas or watch more of you online. Uh, so, Ben Wilkoff, uh, I am found at BH Wilkoff on Twitter and pretty much anything else. Um, so definitely look me up and, uh, and love to have conversations about this stuff. Uh, always game to collaborate as well. And I will say that Ben is an avid YouTube video blogger, and my wife has has laughed many a time on our Apple TV as Ben on the large screen has been, you know, walking to work or whatever, you know, sharing his ideas. So it's awesome. And if you ever want to see one of the best K-12 online videos, check out Six Second Stories for Learning, which was probably two or three years ago that Ben did. So inspirational. Jason, where can we find you online? Well, my name is Jason Neifer, and I'm the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the fabulous state virtual school located in Missoula, Montana. I'm also the tech-savvy administrator in residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, um, and I blog at blog.ncc.org. My main social engagement is on Twitter, where I am tech-savvy-teach, and I do read a lot of technology news because I'm a geek, and a and I share quite a bit of it on Twitter, so... Um, uh, happy to connect with you there. If you just want to see what's going through my head, that's a good place to do it. And I am Wes Fryer, W. Fryer on Twitter. Uh, speedofcreativity.org is my primary blog, and there's a podcast there which is infrequently posted to, and I think I'll be doing an interview with my wife uh, probably this weekend and uh, would encourage you to uh, also check out the Learning Showcase site that I'm now posting weekly to for our school. Had an interview with a couple of our kids doing Lego Mindstorms and block programming and a you know, pretty, pretty cool video, and that's at showcase.cassidy.org. We want to remind you that next week we will be rolling our clocks forward a week. Actually, not our clocks, but just our alarms for the show, and we'll be starting at 7 p.m. Central. Um, that, am I saying that right? No, 8 p.m. Central, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain. We can do the math for, for Pacific and Eastern, but we're going to welcome Jen Carey to the show, and she is an educator from Florida. She was a guest on the show a few weeks back, and we'll look forward to talking about whatever EdTech news might happen to come up between now and then, and we're sure to have a lively discussion. So thank you all so much for tuning in, and until next time, we encourage you to stay safe and stay digitally connected. Thanks for tuning in.